there's an obvious reason why these people on the right wrap themselves in a very distorted vision of Christianity. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. Because they want to make their positions and the positions of the Bible one of the same. Uh, and they want to say that to be a good Christian, you've got to follow their political agenda. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. Historian Kevin M. Cruz is expert at bringing context to some of the events we are witnessing in today's America. Some of what we're seeing is part of a long and too often untold history of Christian nationalism in our country. An author, Princeton professor, and commentator, Kevin will be with us to weigh in on where our politics and public religion are headed. And now there are several grassroots groups that are mobilizing primarily new immigrants, Muslims and Orthodox Ethiopians of late to view the opt out as gender indoctrination. Tensions are flaring in communities across the country where LGBTQ inclusion in public schools has been weaponized for the benefit of an anti-gay minority. A top priority on the Christian nationalist agenda, the attack on public schools has pitted marginalized groups against one another. This week, I'll talk with Amberine Khan, host of Interfaith Voices on NPR, a former Interfaith Alliance board member, and a Maryland parent facing this conflict in her own school district. Things are changing at State of Belief. We're partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country, for distribution and expansion of this show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We've got so much planned for the weeks and months ahead, and I don't want you to miss it. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com and you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. The author of books like One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America, and most recently co-editor of Myth America, historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Dr. Kevin M. Cruz is a professor of history at Princeton University. He specializes in the political and social history of 20th century America with a particular interest in conflicts over race, rights, and religion. Kevin, welcome back to the State of Belief. So great to be here. Sir, you're a historian, so I'm going to start out with the big history question, which is difficult to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. In 50 years, how are historians going to talk about this time? What are they going to lead with? What are the things that they're going to say, wow, you won't believe what was going on in 2023? 
where to begin. I mean, first of all, I hope there are historians in 50 years and it's not, you know, we're not gathered around a campfire somewhere listening to old father tell stories. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, it's, and it's, it's hard to say in the moment, right, what is going to be really remarkable about this. But I think we can get a sense of that from where we feel like we've departed from the past. And I think one of the most uh, pressing and wide-ranging issues that we deal with today is just the widespread plague of misinformation we have. We've always had people lying in American history, right? Um, uh, we've always had people who playing fast and loose with the truth, but they've tended to be on the margins of American history. They haven't held sway for a long time. What's happened in recent years, and there have been a variety of forces we can talk about that have led into this, we've reached a point where truth is kind of up for grabs. Right. It used to be that we would argue over the facts. What fact was more important? What issue was bigger? What was the more pressing priority? Now we're talking past each other because we're simply disagreeing on basic fundamental facts. And it's not really disagreeing. It's that some people are promoting disinformation. I do think there's blame on all sides and the internet, it just makes this rampant yeah. and all of this. But, you know, if we just use election disinformation and like this persistent uh, hammering that the idea that the 2020 election was stolen, which the lead candidate on the Republican side continues to say is verifiably false by people from his own party and appointees, his own judges. And I just think that, you know, I want to get to Twitter because you're so good at Twitter. I'm like, do they teach Princeton professors how to do Twitter? Because you are like, <laughs> you somehow you are great at it. But you just, you know, you, you mentioned in, in one recent tweet, it's not as though this is both sides doing it equally. Like right. there is a, a really serious disinformation campaign coming from the GOP right now, which just has to be acknowledged. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so that, that book, Myth America, we brought together historians to deal with some of the most pernicious myths uh, that are circulating now. And one of the uh, criticisms we got, a light one, but was, you know, hey, a lot of this stuff you're talking about is on the right. What's going on on the left? Well, there's not as much on the left right now. And, and part of that comes from the fact that when we wrote this book, uh, you know, Trump was was still president. And, you know, uh, with that, uh, that, that kind of uh, bully pulpit was uh, amplifying a lot of these lies out into um, uh, uh, the political sphere. But a lot of it predates Trump. Uh, and we really have seen a movement on the right um, uh, to really become divorced from truth, to present what uh, Kellyanne Conway called alternative facts. Right. Uh, I if, remember that if, moment. That moment yeah. actually was the most chilling moment. We have alternative facts. I well, remember it, it was like just ministry of truth come to life. Right. It was just, you know, uh, and 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 we've seen this in in increments, right? You know, remember in the in, in the uh, uh, the Bush administration, uh, we saw some of the trends start to begin here. So this did predate Trump. We saw the Bush administration was constantly challenging scientific experts on climate change, on issues like that, right? Uh, on the war in Iraq, there was that famous interview with Ron Susskind, where I, I think it was Carl Rove. I don't know if he's ever been identified, who says, "Look, you reporters live out in the reality-based community." What we're doing is creating our own reality, right? right, right. And, and that's kind of a remarkable departure point. And, and here we are two decades later, and we can see how far down a, a dangerous path that kind of thinking has taken us. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, it has real implications right now because uh, I, I know that, you know, um, the writer Jeff Charlotte, whose new book, yeah. Undertow, I think, you know, we had him on the show and I, 
I consider it one of the most important books out there right now. Just the the portrayal of um, you know he he you know he goes in it he goes in like he's there you know and yeah. these you know going into these kind of militia churches with guns on the altar and they're preaching things that are verifiably false, like Hillary Clinton is dead and Trump is president. Mm -hmm. And, and people are like, you know, kind of nodding their head and saying, absolutely, absolutely. Or, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way before. And this is, I think what you're talking about is if we can't, if we're so far apart on verifiable facts, like how do we build a future together? I, I think that, you know, that wasn't exactly what I expected you to come back with as far as like the future historians. Um, but I think that that's, that, that does feel like it affects all areas of life. And it's interesting, you know, you started with, if there still are historians, yeah. I think like this idea of misinformation, disinformation, it it is an attack on, Places like universities, mm -hmm. places like um, any any institution of learning, at libraries, anywhere yeah. where there is where there's information, and I you know I, I do think you know the the question of whether or not we'll have those kind of civic institutions or who will control them to what end is really you know really wild um, right yeah. now, and it's I think I think you know. Basically, and I'll, and then I you know I'll pitch it back to you. But one of, some of the things that for me has been so disturbing is that things I kind of took for granted, I now no longer take for granted. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and, and I think that that just that that feels terrifying for me. Um, and history is also about like the story we tell about ourselves, and yeah. it's the story. And so you know, I want to talk a little bit about the the book Myth America. And, uh, you know, we had uh, your colleague, uh, Julian, on the show earlier when it first came out, and it was so great to talk to him. But I did, I did, you know, have a critique, and I'm going to level at you too, is that there wasn't the myth around Christian America. I know, I know. And, 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 and I, you know, I'll, it, I, you know, there was so much great stuff. This is a book yeah. that everyone should read because it actually is, like, it's, it goes back to this point. How do we understand what's true and what has been this, 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 the lies wrapped around a nugget where, um, but, but you, you're like the expert. I mean, one of yeah. the many, you know, you, this is really a, a place where you shine is what is our true history? And I would love for you, you know, for the benefit of our listeners um, who may not have had a chance um to read your Substack, we're going to get to that. But you have an amazing Substack uh, called Campaign Trail, which like everyone, like it's amazing. You can subscribe to this and get smarter. Uh, so I, <laughs> it's really amazing. Um, but you wrote something about Hugo Black and yeah. his decision around school prayer. Can you talk about that and like yeah. this broader question of where religion fits in the history of America, especially this idea of a Christian nation and and the you know why why Hugo Black felt it was so important to argue against prayer yeah. in school? So as I as I talk about in in One Nation Under God and Death, which is what that uh, that post was drawn from, uh, there's a movement in the 1950s. Um, in which America suddenly embraces a level of public religiosity that it hadn't had before. Uh, and uh, there had been prayers in various schools, largely in, you know, religiously homogenous communities where it wouldn't cause a problem uh, throughout American history. It really becomes a, a political debate uh, in the 1950s when you get things like the New York uh, State Board of Regents who control education in the state 
crafting an official prayer, which they encourage to be uh, uh, read aloud in schools. And uh, it's it's a recommendation, but a lot of schools uh, embrace it. And one of the ones that, that did uh, was in Herrick's uh, New York and Long Island. And when they do, it immediately causes uh, a, a real stir in this town, um, uh, largely as it gets seen as a way for uh, kind of the Catholic old residents of the town to push back against newer Jewish arrivals. Uh, it really does kind of bleed into the fault lines there. Uh, and so the case of Engel v. Vital, uh, Engel was one of the parents, a Jewish parent uh, in this town. Vital was the, uh, Vitali was the um, uh, school superintendent, reaches the Supreme Court. And the, and the case here, it's often misconstrued. It certainly was the press when it came out that the Supreme Court had banned all prayer from schools. What it's really about is they banned the state from writing and implementing prayers in the school. And so if you understand that really crucial detail about the school prayer case, it takes on a really different uh, 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 set of dimensions. And Hugo Black recognized this. Uh, and Hugo Black was somebody who, uh, he came from Alabama. Uh, he had been a Sunday school teacher for adults uh, at his Baptist church and a deacon. Uh, and uh, in keeping with what was at the time the Baptist tradition in the mid 20th century, he was at the forefront of a movement calling for the separation of church and state. Um, that line, as you well know, comes from a letter Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, to uh, some uh, Danbury, Connecticut Baptists, uh, saying there was a wall of separation between church and state in America. That's what the First Amendment had set up. And as Black knew, Jefferson was absolutely right on that. Again, these, these debates about whether or not America is a Christian nation. Well, the originalists like to go back to the text a lot, but they don't on this point. Right. And it's crystal clear. Crystal. Crystal. You know, that's the thing. It, it, you know, when and you've been so helpful this on this, like the, the Treaty of Tripoli, the, yeah. um, the I mean, the, the First Amendment, you know, the Treaty of Tripoli, by the way, if people don't know it, it's a very fascinating treaty that was in like the, you know, 1796 that basically yeah. starts with the with the language. As uh, as the United States is in no way founded on the Christian religion, yeah. you know, we have yeah. no reason to be at war with Muslim nations. And and That's it's right. just like, right. you know, the, letters like that, like the, the Washington letter to the Hebrew congregation, all of these yeah. are like, there is no Christian nation at the founding. The Treaty of Tripoli, launched by George Washington, signed by John Adams, ratified by a Senate that was still about half full with people who uh, who uh, helped uh, draft the Constitution, speaks pretty clearly to the founders' intent. Right. And again, just go to the Constitution itself, right? All I the mean, references to religion in the Constitution are ones that purposely keep religion at arm's length, right? The First well, Amendment, even just the non-establishment clause. You don't really need to go clause. further than that. Uh, yeah, but okay, so so. Yeah. But I think that, you know, one of the things that just, you know, with the Hugo Black is I, that you, you know, is so moving is that he really felt he was protecting religion. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but he Absolutely. was painted as someone who was attacking religion. And that's exactly what he lays out. And and this, uh, I think, why as an historian, I really like that ruling so much because he works like an historian. He 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 has his clerks running to the Library of Congress, getting all sorts of text. It's a length by the sixth draft. It's a lengthy opinion about kind of the long history of religious oppression in the Anglo-American world from the 16th to the 18th centuries. And he says, look, this is what the founders were escaping. They right. knew that when religion 
and the state intermingled, religion suffered, right? And so in order to have all religious liberty flourish, we've got to keep the state out of this business. And again, that was very much in keeping with the tradition of the Baptist faith and many other Protestant faiths at the time. A Catholic. Yeah, well, I mean, I, as yeah. a Baptist myself, you know, I mean, like the idea of, I mean, soul freedom, the idea of like the, you know, this is, you know, that there will be no coercion, you know, I mean, this is really, really important. And I think, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what really struck me in that, in that substack that you have, it's called the campaign trail, Kevin Cruz substack. Um, I, I love, I, first of all, just as an aside, one of I love it that you're a public intellectual and you really understand what that means, which is to speak in the the mediums where people can find you. You don't have to be a student. You don't have to be accepted to Princeton or get accepted into your small seminar in order to really you know learn. And that's what this Substack is really so great about. Thank um, you. But you know, I think I I just. I think, you know, we're, we're there again, where there's this, there is this small section and we're, you know, right now, you know, that we, we've come up with a label called Christian nationalists, which is like a, a, about a political power grab that uses the rhetoric of Christianity. They, they try to, you know, take the Bible, take the flag and say, okay, we're, we're holding that. And, yeah. and I think it's just the opposite. They're trying to uh, subvert both, frankly. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you, I, I know you have sympathy for that, that position. I want to give you a little, a little tidbit that you never have heard about Hugo Black. Okay. I don't know if, if you remember when Hugo Black was nominated to the Supreme Court, there was a controversy. Because oh, yeah. like many, many people in the South and people mm-hmm. in church, there was a connection with the Ku Klux Klan yeah, that was absolutely. raised up. And so I I was told by one of my uh, uncles that there were reporters camped out outside of my great-grandfather Brandeis's summer home trying to get a comment from him about Hugo Black's Ku Klux Klan uh, affiliation. Hmm. And and my, my uncle was sent out. He was probably 10 at the time yeah. and told to tell the reporters that there would be no comment. <laughs> and I was like, what a great... I was like, I don't know that that story is widely out there, but I think it's a good one. That's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Not to excuse, but but to explain, uh, black like many politicians of an era of both parties, uh, but especially in the South, uh, saw membership in the Ku Klux Klan, which was regarded as kind of a fraternal club in, in the eyes of many whites. It certainly wasn't that for their victims. Uh, it thought it was a, a way to get ahead in politics and, and an essential thing to do. He, he came to regret it and and and, and yeah, apologize for it. it. And then uh, and, yeah, and I, on, the, on the Supreme Court became a, a, an ardent supporter of civil rights. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it is a, it, you know, it, it it was interesting for me to hear that story and be like, oh, okay, that shines a slightly different light on Hugo Black. Right. But then you read his decisions, you realize that, the, you know, yeah. he, he completely moved on from there. Um, so t- tell me a little bit about your, um, your Substack and like what you're hoping to accomplish with it. And, yeah. um, and just, you know, I, I, there's so <laughs> Twitter, you know, we, this is social media is like, you know, you were you were major on Twitter. You're still there, but I can imagine you're. You know how we imagine social media, especially in the age of disinformation. What our role is yeah. in communication as people who are trying to hold the facts and and convey them as we as best we can. What? Yeah. Is, how do you see? How do you see your Substack? Well, I mean, and the, the uh, I was very kind of you to say. Uh, 
those words about kind of the public engagement, because that that really is my goal. Um, you know, I, I'm a firm believer. Uh, the historian Carl Becker, um, almost 100 years ago, chided historians, you know, that the, the, the work uh, that lies in unread books, uh, that lies inert in unread books on the shelf does no work in the world. Uh, and, and as much as I'd love to believe everyone out there is reading my books cover to cover, I know that's not the case. Uh, and we've got to go meet people where they are, right? And so for me, for the last eight years, uh, Twitter has been a, a real way to do that, to try to uh, to push back against um, uh, misstatements of history made by politicians and public figures uh, in real time, uh, to provide real evidence. That's one of the things I liked about it over op-eds. It was both quicker, but also I could show images. You know, I could show the, I'm, I'm an archive rat. I like digging things out of the archives and sharing it with people. And I could show the primary evidence there. Uh, the problem is that uh, Twitter under new management um, has become uh, much clunkier. Uh, the the blue check promotion thing is bringing all the worst people up. I find uh, when I make threads these days, they don't have remotely the circulation that they used to. And that's fine. It's it's his site. Um, so I'm shifting more and more over to, to do these things on Substack where I'm in control. I can still do all the things I like about Twitter, the immediate response, the sharing of evidence, but I can actually do it in a slightly longer version. Um, you know, I don't need to write full chapters here, uh, but the essay link there is a good one uh, that exceeds, you know, the uh, whatever the, the the 280 character count uh, in a tweet. Yeah. Uh, and and so I'm hoping that that this uh, continues to build. It's off to to a, to a decent start. Uh, always looking to expand. Uh, and I hope people find the the post useful. Uh, I yeah. hope they, uh, they they share. They're free, so share them, uh, uh, please. Uh, uh, get the word out. I think you I think you have the option to pay if you feel like you want to. But right now, yes, I think most of your content is free and it's much appreciated. Yeah. I'll just say, like you know, for me, um, you know, this when I first started Huffington Post uh, religion, I was really like, you know, my basic pitch was like. Too many great religious people are not using social media. It's very like it's very dominated by actually not necessarily the best, uh, you know, the people who are most interested in religious pluralism, most interested in justice. We didn't we didn't jump on it the same way. Right. And I just felt like a lot of people in the especially in the academy I remember doing something at American Academy of Religion on the internet and the academy and people were like, I don't, you know, I'm not that kind of an academic. And I was like, okay, okay. But you know what? I mean, just realize what you're doing, you know, when you do yeah. that and that there's lots yeah. of people who need you, they need your wisdom, you know? Um, so, so anyway, that's like, I'm, I just really appreciate it. And that's kind of the tradition I come from the, the academics in my family tried to be in the public square as much as possible, giving, using the, using the equipment equipment that they had or the technology that they had. You named it the campaign trial. Uh, do you, do you imagine this uh, following the upcoming campaign and yeah, yeah. offering insights and, and trying to, you know, truth tell and fact check and all those good things? Yeah, exactly. And, and again, I see this picking up what I have done in Twitter and my Twitter account started in the spring of 2015, right before that presidential cycle started. And uh, I sunk my teeth into that. We're at the same moment in the cycle now. Uh, and I really do see it uh, uh, being something that brings in politics. I, I did campaign trails as a, as a title, just to kind of the uh, the after effects of, of civil rights campaigns and political campaigns. But I really do want to be um, providing historical context uh, for the present as well as we go. Yeah. I mean, what are, what is your, th I mean, give us a, give us your perspective on 
the upcoming campaign as you see it now. And, um, uh, you know Peter Mansoor. Do you do you know him? Yeah. He's he's, yeah. he's he's a fabulous guy, and he went yeah, out fantastic. on Twitter saying saying Trump will never be the nominee by the time it gets to the first. Um, he, you know, and I was, I, you know, so I've actually taken that and, and brought it into family situations. Do you guys think he's going to make it with all the indictments? I'm curious. Where do you see both in the Democratic side and the and the Republican side? Where do you see the state of play right now? Yeah. Well, the Democratic side is, is I think, pretty straightforward. Um, uh, barring um, something catastrophic, uh, Joe Biden is going to walk to the nomination. Uh, the Robert F. Kennedy challenge is uh, having its moment now, but it's going to dissipate. I think as more people realize he's more of a name and some of the actual positions he's had and the people who are associated with him, I think Democrats are going to kind of run screaming from that. Uh, he's not going to get much of a traction. Incumbent presidents never debate their challengers, so he's not going to have that, that way in. I respect Peter a lot, but I'm not sure I agree with that uh, sentiment that that Trump won't be the nominee. Uh, and, and I say so because I, uh, what we've seen is with every indictment so far, his support has gone up. Um, and, and, and again, this is that thing we talked about at the start, the kind of alternative reality that some people are in. His base sees these 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 charges as irrelevant. They they both sides it. They've invented some bizarre conspiracy about Joe Biden that they're trying to push. Um, uh, they see any attack on him as a sign he must be doing something right. They are doubling down on him. And yeah. who's the alternative? I mean, DeSantis is shown he's not really ready for prime time, and his numbers are are fading. Uh, and he's tried to be a kind of a, you know a clone of Trump. Uh, the rest of the field is getting more crowded every day. And as a result, I think it's going to look just like 2016, where the not Trump vote is divided between about 12 different candidates and no one gets any traction and we all cancel each other out. Yeah. So I, mean, uh, I think Chris Christie is trying to like actually, trying, yeah. you know, like, you know, and 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 probably he's helped by the calendar and the fact that New Hampshire is pretty friendly uh, to him. Yeah. So th there might be a moment. Um, but my guess is that Trump's going to refuse to debate anybody. Um, he, you know, I, I, yeah, he's 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 talked about refusing the main debates against Biden. Yeah. I mean, so he might as well just right. you know, yeah, right. And again, yeah. he's the front runner. He he has you know, unless they all you know uh, show up at his rallies in, in chicken suits like they used to with uh, George H. W. Bush, uh, they're not going to shame him into doing anything, right? right. So uh, no, that's right. Probably that's right. probably blow him off. Yeah, the you know the uh, I want to spend just a minute on DeSantis because I I just feel as far as Christian nationalism go. He's like the embodiment of it. He yeah. is using Christian rhetoric. I mean, you know, to to use Ephesians, uh, talk about the armor of God, and then replace the devil with the left. I yeah. mean, it's 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 very pernicious, and it creates this zero sum game of spiritual warfare for his followers against anyone who opposes him. There is no yeah. opportunity for compromise. There is no opportunity for moving together to try to understand one another. If if you if you slate people as the devil, then mm -hmm. it's pretty clear you can't compromise with the devil. And so um, 
And then you see, I don't know if you saw this crazy video from Rick Scott saying socialists not welcome in yeah. Florida or communist socialist. I, I honestly didn't watch the whole thing, but that was his headline. You know, he put out the tweet and I thought that is one of the most fascistic things ever. I mean, I'm not a socialist or a communist in my own leanings, but the idea that America is actually great because we have a democracy and we and we we decide together what we're doing. And the yeah. idea that people who hold particular affiliations are not welcome in one of the states, it and and that you're divide. I don't know. It just felt really. It, it felt chilling to me. Um, and we've already, you know, we have we 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 realize that the the policies there are are really adverse. And you know, speaking of higher education, like what can you say in higher education is under attack in Florida. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot there to talk about. First of all, the Rick Scott thing, to say communists and socialists aren't welcome in your state when there are literally Nazis protesting outside Disney World. 100%. And, and that's the target you pick is really remarkable. But also Rick Scott talking about, he wasn't just socialism and communism, he's talking about big government too. Rick Scott, who pulled off one of the biggest what Medicaid frauds of all time, apparently, um, uh, to complain about that in a state where there are so many people on Social Security, Medicaid, SNAP benefits, a state that Social Security, bailouts for for hurricanes, right? To complain about big government is just pathetic. Um, the Christian nationalism stuff, uh, I think you've got it exactly right. I mean, there's an obvious reason why uh, um, uh, these people on the right wrap themselves uh, in a very distorted vision of Christianity. Uh, because they want to make um, uh, their positions and, and and the positions of the Bible one of the same. Uh, and they want to say that to be a good Christian, you've got to follow their political agenda. Yeah, there, I would say it's not the Bible. It's like, you know, I don't even like, yeah. you know, I, I had I had uh, Bishop Barber on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's like, there's 200 verses, 2000 verses about the poor in the Bible. Yeah. If you cut all those out, the Bible falls apart. Right. You know, uh, you know, and, and and so they're not like they they are not talking about the Bible. They are not yeah. talking. I mean, they're they're just like they're using this rhetoric, and and it ah, uh, there's so much to cringe at. But did you hear him like talk about? I would have really liked to have been a disciple. Did you see that? Oh my Where, god! Yes. Uh, I, I yeah. mean, that was so fun. It was like comic. It was. It looked like Saturday Night Live. You know, those guys look like they were really interesting. I would have liked to have been a disciple. Oh yeah. Which which martyr would you like to have been? You know, I mean, like it. It, it is. It, it was just. It, it's so. It feels so fake and and uh, anyway yeah but 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 also like don't call yourself a disciple of jesus like don't say i that's who i really feel i am you know i mean it's right. it, it's again it's using christianity for power for a power group. i mean i think that's the perfect example he, he's talking about, he wants the status of a disciple he's not really listening the way in which the disciples actually did to what christ said i mean there wasn't a whole lot correct me if i'm wrong uh, I don't believe Jesus spent a lot of time denouncing drag queens, uh, <laughs> talking about woke indoctrination, right? Actually, you know, it's it's kind of perfect because a lot of, Jesus spent a lot of time telling his disciples they were missing the point. Right. Like, there's a lot of that <laughs> in the Bible of, of Jesus saying, you're missing the point. You're That's talking right. about things that don't matter. You have no idea of what's happening. It's a, you know, they are almost a foil for like what not to be. Right. Uh, right. uh, so, so he's, he, maybe he's got that part right. So 
I mean, I would love for you to talk to me a little bit just about um, what's in the future for you. Like, what are you studying right now? What are you looking at? What kind of research are you doing? And um, just to get a little bit of a a sneak peek. Sure. Yeah. Always happy to talk. Um, So my current project, and I'm on leave this year, so I'm finally getting back to it. I was on it during COVID and that grounded to a halt, is a project about uh, John Doerr and the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Door was kind of the point man for civil rights in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. He was a Princeton alum, and when he passed in 2014, uh, his papers wound up here, and they are phenomenal. Uh, anyone listening who's a historian or, or interested in civil rights should check this collection out because the level of detail he's got on these things is just amazing. He was, I joke, but he was kind of like uh, the Forrest Gump of the civil rights movement. He is. Uh-huh. At the Freedom Rides, he uh, spends uh, two weeks uh, sleeping in James Meredith's dorm room in Ole Miss. He uh, prosecutes the Mississippi burning trial. He uh, helps implement the Voting Rights Act. On and on. He is all over the place. What was his profile? Where was he from? Where? where... He, so he's a Republican from Wisconsin, and oh, wow. he get, and he gets the job. Uh, he gets the job in uh, uh, the waning months of the Eisenhower administration. When nobody wants the job with this civil rights division that hasn't done a damn thing, uh, and he uh, uh, he kind of grudgingly takes the job, uh, and he takes it. He says originally for partisan reasons. He was a Midwestern Republican, upset that Southern Democrats had so much quote representation from the African Americans who weren't allowed to vote, and he wanted to kind of right that wrong. He grows beyond those partisan uh, vibes, uh, but he's immediately successful in cracking some voter discrimination suits in Tennessee. And when the Kennedys come in, they look over all that the Department of Justice has done, and they think he's the most impressive guy. So they ask him to hang on. Uh, and so this Republican winds up being one of the most effective uh, forces for uh, two Democratic administrations on civil rights. He stayed with Johnson? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Johnson actually promotes him to be the head of the Civil Rights Division. He's an assistant uh, attorney general. He finally uh, retires in 1967. That's wild. Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't know like where he fits in the, you know, my family is, has Wisconsin roots and was very affiliated with the La Follette, which was mm-hmm. a Republican outfit. Yeah. So, the, the, you know, when you say Republican in Wisconsin, you have to like kind of figure out the timing. Yeah. And I don't know if yeah. he came, comes out, he probably wasn't exactly out of that, but there was a, there was a, a range of Republicans yeah. in yeah. Wisconsin well, at the, that the, time. Joseph McCarthy is another kind of Wisconsin Republican. He definitely wasn't that kind. He, he always called himself a Lincoln Republican, which I think was kind of an Eisenhower Republican, you know, okay, okay. Uh, a moderate okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, and certainly more supportive of civil rights than, uh, than, than the party would shift. Yeah, yeah, that's really that. Well, that sounds like an amazing project. I mean, that's really that, fun. and also like very like you know, helping us understand that era so that we can understand our era. And yeah, and, and that's, that's, that's always one of my hopes. And and with this project, uh, one of the things I really want to underscore is that you know our institutions matter. Uh, and uh, I think one of the things we've all discovered in the last decade is. We kind of assume a lot of this government runs on autopilot, that there are rules in place, there are norms respected, things are going to work out as we expect, right? Well, January 6th showed that things can quickly go off the rails. And what Door shows in this in this project, I hope, is that uh, people and, and men and women like him who were in the Department of Justice really used those tools that were laying there before them. Uh, they made them sharper, they made them better, but they used them. And they really affected uh, really important changes. Uh, and and those changes were, you know, eroded in later years by other people in those positions who had different goals. But if we set our mind to it, 
You know, there's a feeling of powerlessness we often have. But if we set our mind to it, there's a lot of things we can't actually do uh, and do well in this country. I think that's incredibly important. And to realize that civic institutions like a civil rights division in government wasn't always there. It had to be created. And, you know, it's like the Social Security Act was created that, you know, my my grandparents had to do with. And and all of a lot of the things that we take, uh, you know, kind of, again, for granted, weren't Mm -hmm. always there. Someone made those laws and made those institutions and they can be dismantled. One of the things that's just so mystifying to me is my grandmother, who's writing this biography of her, she works so hard on child labor laws to Mm. stop children from being exploited. And around the country now you see child labor laws being rolled back. And it's really, you know, you're kind of like, oh, I thought we weren't doing that anymore. You know, I mean, like I thought we weren't exploiting children anymore for, for you know, for for money uh, mm-hmm. and for gain. And yet, you know, here we are again. And so we have to continue to, you know, understand why the initial impulse happened with these creations and, and continue to move them forward to meet the needs and continue to get better. Um, but it is, these things don't just happen and they won't just stay unless we work for it. I think it's just, that's a, right. Yeah, it's a I, lesson I note, in democracy. Yeah. I often note on Twitter, you know, people, uh, liberals and leftists like to quote Martin Luther King Jr. Talking about the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I like to remind them he didn't sit back and wait for it to be, be bent. Right. He, no. Hold up his sleeves and work to make that happen, right? And that's no. that's the here. It can be done, but it's not going to happen on its own. No, that's right. It's it, we we have to we we have to be part of the bending. So I I like to ask people um, on this show to end with the question: What gives you hope right now? What gives me hope? Um, what gives me hope are that. People are realizing uh, that kind of uh, message that I just I just said. I'm not the first one to say it, uh, but uh, I think one of the things, the silver lining of of our time, is that after decades of people kind of thinking that democracy ran on autopilot, uh, uh, they thought it was a spectator sport. Uh, they're realizing that it's not, uh, and the level of engagement we've seen uh, in recent years, especially from younger people, mm. is really remarkable and really encouraging. Uh, and uh, I sound like Whitney Houston. I believe children are the future, but uh, I do. I think they're they're giving us some some signs of hope here, and so uh, I'm really encouraged by the seeds of what seems to be an important change. As a historian, I'm always resistant to judge things as they're shifting because uh, I know they can change uh, very quickly. But I do think we're seeing the growth of a really important new movement in this country on a variety of issues, on climate change, on gun control, on on, on economic inequality, on race, gender, sexuality. There's a whole lot of issues on, on which uh, the ground is changing beneath our feet. And we're seeing a lot of resistance and a lot of pushback and a lot of efforts to roll the clock back, I think because people who are resistant to these changes realize that there's a real change coming. Uh, and, and that resistance should just be a sign of, of progress happening and uh, a reminder that we all need to double down. Mm, I think that's so right. And I, I love that, you know, this is the theme of young people giving people hope is you're not the first. It is uh, almost consistent. And I think it's important just to underscore that because there was, I think a lot of people have, ah, these young people, they're just on their devices. They're like ignoring it. Listen, you know, 
I think it's amazing that what what is happening with with you know the intensity and the intelligence of young activists is remarkable. But I will say, like, I when people ask me what gave me hope when I was at Princeton, I was like, I have. I'm surrounded by these young people who are asking the right questions. Yeah. They are engaged. They are, you know, completely up for the conversation and up for democracy. And I just, yeah. I feel like if we can make sure that we are um, fueling as much power, as much energy, and as much openness to their input as possible, I think that we're, um, it will be, it will do well for us. Absolutely. Dr. Kevin M. Cruz is professor of history at Princeton University. Find his campaign trails insights at Kevin M. Cruz. I'm going to spell it K-E-V-I-N-M-K-R-U-S-E dot substack dot com. Kevin, thank you for being with us on State of Belief. It's an absolute pleasure. Great seeing you. Coming up next, Embereen Khan. She's witnessing firsthand how Muslim parents are getting drawn into an anti-gay campaign in Montgomery County, Maryland public schools and causing divisions in the community. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. Joining me now is Ambreen Khan, host of Interfaith Voices program at NPR, a former Interfaith Alliance board member and a Maryland parent facing a conflict in her own school district. Ambreen, welcome to the State of Belief. Thank you, Paul. It is a pleasure to be here. You have been a leader in interfaith work. You have an amazing show, Interfaith Voices. Everyone should check it out. It is so beautiful, deeply spiritual, relevant, and important. And so this is kind of your bread and butter. You do this, and now it's kind of happening to you. You're part of a conflict. In broad strokes, what's happening in Montgomery County So, um, Paul, what's happening in Montgomery County, which is right outside the nation's capital, um, we're a really large and diverse school district. And like many places after 2020, school officials began questioning and examining the curriculum. Are we as inclusive as we can be? And part of that process was looking at the various books that are part of the English language arts program. So, In January of 2023, this year, there were six books that included LGBTQ characters in the stories, like Poppy Pride, a book that's for kindergarten. And those six books were approved. Well, what started happening is Moms for Liberty in Montgomery County was raising concerns. They were flagging this as inappropriate 
They were calling it sex ed. They were calling it gender indoctrination. And they wanted the books removed. Then they wanted to encourage families to opt out opt out of listening or reading and classroom discussion. So here's what happened. Schools were starting to hear from parents that were concerned about these books. And to kind of address the issue on a case-by-case basis, teachers and principals were letting kids be pulled out of the class during an English conversation about a book. When the school board discovered that this was happening and the protests were growing, it realized that, wait a minute, You can't opt out of math or biology. You can't opt out of English class. You can't opt out of language arts. By law in Maryland, the only thing you can opt out of that families can opt their children out of instruction is sex ed and family life curriculum, which is by state law. So the school system said, wait a minute, we're clarifying the policy. You can't opt out of English language arts. You can't opt out of circle reading time. And that's when Moms for Liberty started organizing and reaching out and engaging with other groups. And they engaged with the Council of American Islamic Relations, which is a national organization. Their Maryland organizer started working and trying to find support. And now there are several grassroots groups that are mobilizing primarily new immigrants, Muslims and Orthodox Ethiopians of late to view the opt out as gender indoctrination, which is what they're saying. There have been now three large protests, each one growing outside the school board system. I've been attending those meetings to try to understand what's happening and interviewing people. And there's a lot happening here, but part of what this story is about is an absolute um, misinformation campaign about what is being taught in the schools. And and it is, it's also a story of, you know, how people are in some ways leaning into and tapping into fear and also using religion in a way that divides a community, that divides a school system, I just wonder, like, what does it mean to opt out of education? What does it mean to opt out of a conversation about difference? You said that people can opt out of, like, what is essentially sex ed. These are not sex ed books. These are about characters who are different. And I think that, you know, what what feels to me the most kind of sad about this is that We're seeing now a kind of bifurcation that we've really tried hard not to have, which is what exactly what happened to your son? Oh, are all Muslims anti-gay or, you know, and I think that this is, you know, we're it's just it's another sign of like the fraying of our cultural contract. I mean, how do you understand this as an interfaith activist? You know, I think that it's interesting that you, you know, the, the the interfaith kind of dimension of this. Montgomery County is a really unique place. Um, the county, as a as 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 a municipality in the school system, is home to not just two or three cultures. We're home to people who come from 158 countries and who speak over a hundred languages, and the religious diversity is there as well. We have so many different cultures in 
in, engaged in our communities. And I, you know, Paul, I was a PTA president for several wow. years in my local elementary school um, because it was really important to me to be involved in the schools. And what I experienced when I, my kids were in elementary school was that when you bring people from different experiences who have different contexts for how you engage with schools, you have to have a space for people to understand the system, to learn the process, and to talk to each other. You know, people come from different countries of context where ideas are different, where acceptance looks different. I mean, I feel like in Montgomery County, what has made us such an amazing community and why I have called it home for over two decades is because the ethos has been one of listening and learning and being okay, being a little uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, in addition to my national work with the interfaith uh, community, I also sit on the board of the Interfaith Conference of Metropolitan Washington, which is more locally focused. And, you know, Every experience I've had since I was a little kid, I'm an immigrant, I'm a Muslim, I, you know, I, li I was an adult, I was a parent at 9-11. I, I fully appreciate what interlocking systems of oppression looks like. Y you cannot understate that using religion as a way to challenge inclusive education is not going to have a backlash mm. and open up, let's just say it, Paul, open up negative assumptions people still have about Muslims. Well, I mean, that's what your your, your own son experienced. You know, I, I think that's the really interesting, you know, and kind of terrible, you know, that all of a sudden your son had to answer for you know, the actions of others. And, you know, that's really, you know, that this idea of dividing people and it, it is very harmful. This idea of dividing people and and uh, and it, it is very harmful. And and I, I just it's, it makes me fear for for the LGBTQ community. It makes me fear for the Muslim community and it makes me sad for America that that everyone cannot and also the idea that there are not LGBTQ Muslims well, is so also something that we need to say. Full disclosure, Paul. So I'm a journalist. I'm, a, I'm the host of a show. I interview people. I introduce the audiences that uh, trust me into their homes every week to ideas and people who I think enlighten and help us understand what's happening in the world. And in full disclosure, which I have, am very adamant about doing, I when my son said something to me after I came back from that first board meeting that I heard what was being said, he asked me to testify. And I said, honey, I'm a little concerned. I, I'm, it, it's not really, as a journalist, I shouldn't be stepping into that role. And he looked at me and he said, mom, no one else is standing up and saying anything. And so, mm. Paul, I testified. I sat down. And it was on June 6th when I went, I was, it was heartbreaking for me heartbreaking. Mm. I had friends literally on both sides of the protest. And I walked in, my heart was pounding. I have testified at events before. I've testified at school board meetings. I've testified at libraries. That was one of the hardest days for me because I was so aware 
of the fear, of the anger, and of the pain people were feeling on both sides. And mm. I think that that pain stems from misinformation that is not being spread by everyone on the street, okay? And that is the responsibility of leaders. And there is a political agenda here, which we're not talking about, Paul. This is about power. There mm. has been a growing frustration by a handful of leaders in Montgomery County who represent certain interests, frustration that they have not been able to uh, elect folks that they want. And there was a, a meeting on Saturday this past weekend at a mosque, and it was said openly. Uh, we, they, we started with transgender bathroom policies that we were upset about, but what everyone got really, what we were really able to organize around was this opt-out. And the opt-out message has been distorted. And it's it's for a political purpose. And what's so sad to me is that the people I met yesterday, I interviewed 25 people, uh, Ethiopian Orthodox, um, new immigrants from around the world who are Muslim. Uh, I interviewed so many folks and kids. And when I said, why, well, have you read the books? No. What What do you think the books are? Pornography. Mm. What do you think will happen? Well, they're teaching sex to three-year-olds and to four-year-olds. And I, I didn't argue. I was trying to listen. And what I heard and I saw in the eyes of mothers and fathers was this impassioned sense of a need to defend their children and to protect their culture. And I think that that genuine pain that they're feeling yeah. is something we cannot ignore. And we can't just demonize. I. I caution people who I talked to yesterday saying, oh my gosh, there are just a bunch of haters out there. And I said, hold on. I think we have to listen to what they're saying. And if somebody is not informed and being actively misled and told that this is sex ed as opposed to books in a curriculum that are part of English class, they're not talking about the things that people think. Right. There's fear yeah. that's, that's generated all this, that before we, before we dive deep into our camps and tribes and open up the stereotypes and tropes that we have, let's pause and listen. And there was a portion yesterday at testimony that was heartbreaking and I saw it happen. And, and, and this woman, it turns out she, she um, I knew her, I didn't realize, I hadn't seen her in 15 years. I didn't know this, her daughter is transgender. And she shared the story of her daughter being bullied, harassed, chased home, and a friend of her daughter's, who's also um, a, a trans well, young woman, was beaten up. And it was videotaped and then put on social media. And as Jocelyn is sharing the story, she's sitting next to two people who are going to testify and tell very different stories from the other side. And I could see the tears in the eyes of the woman who was going, the Ethiopian mom who was going to testify next. And she took a breath and then she gave her testimony. And then they came outside and I was standing there. And the mom came out, the Ethiopian mom came out and she walked up to, to Jocelyn and she said, with tears in her eyes, I am so sorry for what happened to your daughter. And in that moment, Paul, I again go back to what I learned from the early days of sitting down with someone who doesn't know me and who I don't know and just listening to each other and putting down our, our, our assumptions for five seconds. 
and we see each other's humanity. And so what is what my takeaway of what's happening in Montgomery County is the political objective of trying to get power. There's already discussion about trying to unseat and recall and run candidates. There's discussion. There were lots of members of the Maryland GOP there trying to sign up voters. I mean, this is part of a political strategy. Right. It is also, Paul, part of a legal strategy because the Beckett Fund is involved right. and is suing the school system. And at the end of the day, what I have to say is that Montgomery County is home to a lot of communities, and this is going to challenge us, all of us, to take a breath and to find a way to sit down and unpack the emotions that we have and talk to each other and see each other's humanity. Oh, my God. I That was so helpful. Do you feel like maybe that's, you know, there is there space for that? Is there a way that we can we can do that work or, you know, I, I, I just, I, I want to end with like the way I always end with, um, with guests is like, what gives you hope? Like, is that something that you have hoped that can happen? Absolutely. I, I wasn't just hoping for it halfway through the rally. As I was outside talking to people, I started asking them if I invite you to come sit with me at the local library with, with five people and read the books, will you do it? And this mom said, no, absolutely not. I said, but just no cameras, no microphones. And you can have whatever opinion you want to have, but will you sit down with me and just read the book so we can talk about it? And I asked that question over and over again, Paul, and so many people said yes. Uh And I will tell you that that gives me hope that when we share our experiences, when we acknowledge the other person's humanity we build a bridge and it is very difficult to demonize and call each other names this is so helpful paul before you joined the interfaith alliance when i was when i was a part of the of the organization um there was a woman uh donna redwing who i had the opportunity to work with um when she was providing support and guidance as the Interfaith Alliance was trying to facilitate conversations within the mainline denominations, she was the one who really taught me when I was very young, like the importance of acknowledging the power that fear can have in shifting our ability to listen. And she used to facilitate these quiet conversations. And I have been thinking so much about her and Welton and others, because honestly, Paul, I spent 15 years of my life watching and raising concerns about the way the Christian religious right was manipulating and weaponizing religion in the American context. And now I see it happening in my own tradition. And so it, it gives me hope that we have in our community, in our interfaith, multi-faith community, people who know and have experienced and worked to practice the bravery, as Bishop Buddy likes to say, of listening. I'm so sad that I never got to do this show with Welton. Um, the, day, the day before he passed, I was, it was the first Montgomery County school board meeting I had attended for this issue. I, I, I'm a frequent flyer at these board meetings. And 
when I got there and I heard what was being said and I started to see what was unfolding, I knew I'd seen this before. And the feeling I'd had was one that I had heard from him described to me when I first met him in 1998 when he came on board. And I remember the pain he described of feeling and watching and witnessing the weaponizing of the tradition to drive a political agenda and the divides it was creating within his faith community. And I was, you know, this is 1998. And I remember listening to Welton tell me about this. And then we had to hop in my car and we drove to Lancaster, Pennsylvania for him to meet one of the early interfaith alliances. And he was speaking there. And so we had this road trip to get to know each other. We both had roots in Tennessee. And I just remember him talking about what he felt in the 1970s, you know, as all of these events were unfolding and all of these forces that were seeking to kind of mobilize inside the the seminary. And it just, I have to tell you guys, I was feeling and thinking about Welton when I left the school board meeting after listening to the different folks who were uh, raising concerns and invoking faith. And it just, I was so, I had made, resolved in my mind, I'm going to call him tonight and talk to him. And then the next day I saw that and I was just, I was so sad and so um, aware of the loss that we're all kind of uh, experiencing when we lose the elders in our respective faith communities who have witnessed and watched and experienced history that still holds lessons for us today. So I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you. I'm Breen Kahn is the host of Interfaith Voices on NPR. And Breen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I hope to be back. And that's all the time we have for this week's The State of Belief. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping the state of belief on the air. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are being heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.